welcome to one of 200 the new zealand and international politics podcast we've got bronco and justine co-hosting with me uh today uh later on in the cast we'll be talking with richard wagstaff the president of the new zealand council of trade unions about some of the issues with workers rights down in wellington with uh new zealand bus staff uh that had quite a bit of trouble down there um they undertook some strike action and then the business um new zealand bus actually locked them out indefinitely um so we're going to catch up with him and and find out what's happening on the ground uh and some of the other issues occurring there but for now um a little bit of a a, a week that was um what's been happening what, what have you been following um in in new zealand politics folks well rita aura I'm just joking. Um, yeah, what have we been following, guys? Tell me now. What what are we, what are we talking about? So what I follow almost constantly is the landlord news, um, and just to see what's happening in the world of property investment. It's horrific. It's, it continues to be awful. Yeah, it really does. Um, and there's so that so you know um, just on the news today, apparently a um, mortgage broker, which you know obviously is a very trusted source. And I would, if you want to find any kind of news about the how the housing crisis, I would always go to mortgage broker surveys. Um, that's <laughs> just amazing. Find the just really amazing. It's such a good source. Yeah, scientific analysis. But obviously, the New Zealand Herald has repeated it. Um, just totally copied and pasted the source. So great, great journalism. Um, but yeah, apparently landlords are slightly retreating from the housing market. Do I believe that? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the kind of thing you would say. Uh, it's a perfect thing to say before not doing that at all. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I believe that right? when like all the MPs that currently have portfolios <laughs> of rental houses start selling theirs, and we start finding out about it, then I'll believe that um, landlords are retreating yeah. from the market. I think that's a good, I really think that's a good way of surveying the situation, Carl. Thank you. That's like, we should tell the Herald that. Um, yeah. So that's basically what I've been paying attention to. Um, the housing crisis, the never ending story of the housing crisis. Uh, it was really cool. Did you guys see Paul Eagle, Labour MP, say that he was um, supportive of the Ministry of Works? That was Yes. Cool. Yes. That was good. So, Which, but, um, yeah. Do we trust anything that guy says? I hear he's no. not to be trusted. I have no idea who he is, frankly. <laughs> but here's a Labour MP. Yeah. Yeah, well, whatever. I mean, that a lot of people can say that in New Zealand. <laughs> the fact that the issue that, that a Labour MP is even uh, covered in support, whatever, in, in whatever provisional, meaningless way that it is, uh, is a sign at least the issue is kind of starting to break through more yeah. into into the mainstream because Another... why would you bother backing it if you're an mp if you're a politician why bother backing something um that could be in any way a liability you know, <laughs> the, the, that's the, what politicians well, are most interested in for the most part yeah and and the fact that uh, he sees this as as not just not a liability but potentially a good thing for him to sort of come out ahead and say hey i support this and i'll be the first one to to say it um, suggests that you know the the idea is getting getting some sort of traction. What that means, I mean, you know, this is the very beginning. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's a really good point, Bronco, because you know, um, the left is really quick to talk about opportunism, but when mm. people see opportunity on our side, that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, um, we, we want yeah. the opportunists are the are the first. Uh, yeah. the first yeah, that, dominoes that's the first to fall. Sign you're winning. 
Exactly. exactly. Yes. You Something want else. the opportunists on your side. In a similar vein, but from a kind of um, different perspective, I guess. Um, it was really good to see just in the last couple of days, um, we had the Green Party and one of the Green co-leaders, Marama Davidson, uh, come out and, um, you know, inverted commas, slam. Um, <laughs> her, like, you know, she, she's a government minister, um, but slam, um, I guess, uh, MSD, um, the Ministry of Social Development um, and the wider housing situation, um, especially around emergency housing and conditions that a lot of families are facing there and the enormous amounts of money that have been given, been given to moteliers. Mm. Well, you see, that's the problem. I love Marama. She's so nice that even if she was slamming me, I would think it was a compliment. Oh, no, <laughs> that, is, that is the trouble. I don't think, I think like this is some of the more aggressive messaging that the Greens have had. Um, mm. And so it's, again, it feels like something is turning a little bit mm. because the Greens have been pretty reticent um, to come out, especially from the co-leaders um, mm. and uh, attack the government in any way on, on any of their policy. So mm. to see them lead the week with that um, has hopefully started to symbolize some kind of shift in, in what they're planning to do there. We'll yeah. see. I mean, here's the thing. I, I do think it's encouraging. It, it does suggest that certainly. Um, but I, I look at, say, the situation in the U.S., where you have a very vocally oppositional kind of left bloc in, in the U.S. Congress, uh, but that ultimately has not actually used its leverage um, so far at all, yep. really, to get its way. And is, is basically, you know, they'll, they'll say things are critical um, very loudly because that's sort of, um, I guess, how they initially gained a lot of popularity. Um, and, and, but, but at the end of the day, they play ball with the, with the ruling party, yeah. which, which in the U S Congress to some extent is, is necessary because you've only got a small number of left-wing representatives that have to work within this, you know, wider, terrible neoliberal party. Um, but the, my question is, is, is that what's happening here? Is it that, you know, that Mama Davidson, she's the co-leader, she is probably, uh, I would be surprised if she's not feeling some sort of pressure to be a little more oppositional, given how do nothing mm. this government that they are a part of, uh, how, how, how terribly it's done to actually, you know, face up to, to all these fundamental issues that, that the country is facing. And she feels the need to, to kind of reassure people, hey, hey, no, we are, don't get us wrong. We're not supportive of this. We are thinking about this. We want to do something about it. Um, but we won't necessarily do anything, uh, <laughs> but we will, we would, we'll let you know that we are thinking about this. Well, that's, I a, I that's think, the next I big step, right? Yes. Um, yeah. and I, I think for, from my, um, point of view, even the shift in messaging is, uh, is pretty important, um, at least in an electoral sense. But as you say, like, if you're not actually affecting outcomes, um, that's a, that is going to be a problem in the, um, for their political future. Uh, now, you know, she is an associate, she's associate housing minister, I think. Um, and there are definitely kind of more drastic actions that you can take. Uh, I, I, pro I probably don't expect them to. Um, and with a Labour majority, it's probably pretty difficult to actually get policy um, wins at this point without like mm. uh, significant groundswell um, and narrative behind them. I'm just hoping that this is the first step in that direction. Um, mm. And hopefully we see um, Green's polling rise and start to put pressure on Labour that way. 
Yeah. I think, what? you know, I think, oh, sorry, Margaret. I was just saying, I think once it's been a year of this, um, you know, Labour supermajority government, it would be good to kind of reflect on the Greens' decision to go into um, the supply, supply and confidence. Is that right, Supply Kyle? and demand, I, I, think, I, I think supply and demand <laughs> is what you're thinking. Supply and demand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, their decision to, to enter um, in, you know, to enter that supply and demand um, agreement as well as <laughs> being in government. Is that, it's just not a James, hey? Uh, those are the only ministers, yeah. I, okay, cool. I just, I know that there are pedants out there who will tell me that if I say the Greens... Hey, look, they can, they can fucking come for me instead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there, there, there were others who were associates last time, um, or yeah. ministers last time, yeah. but um, yeah, not this time. But I think it'll be good to kind of really think about whether that was the right, you know, decision. Um, and, with, and what would a Green Party in real opposition to this Labour government have looked like? And whether it was a missed opportunity. I mean, my... My instinct is still that it was, honestly. I thought it would be. I thought at the time and then briefly had a period of um, optimism, which is rare for me because I'm <laughs> cynic in the room. Um, and, yeah, now as we've gone on, I, I feel a lot more pessimistic about um, the opportunities to really hold the government to account while being in well, this agreement. I, mean, I think that is the fundamental question that, that I guess these next three years will answer, um, which is can you align yourself with a party and a government that is not just not doing anything but actually actively driving the uh the the, the negative issues that 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 you are ostensibly opposed to you know whether it's poverty the housing crisis climate change um can you align with that party and still kind of credibly hold yourself out as a uh oppositional force to to, to these growing crises uh, I, I don't think so. Um, I guess I, I can't look into the minds of every other New Zealander or every Green voting New Zealand at the very least, but I would, I'll be surprised if, if many think that way. And I, and I guess we'll see at the end of these three years. And, and at that point, you know, the question might be for, for that party. Um, can they, do they do the same thing again? Do they repeat the exact same thing again? Uh, you know, take the, the baubles of office as Winston Peters, uh, uh, remember we put it. Yeah, um, <laughs> but but basically, you know, don't actually, you know, basically give up on those wider uh, actual political goals that they have. Um, and I would argue if, if, you know, if the next three years or the next two years go the way that they look like they're going and they do that, um, that is a incredibly foolish move. Uh, IMO. Uh, <laughs> for myself, that's I think it's going gonna, gonna to be progressively harder for them. The more, the more they work directly with Labour, and the more they tie themselves into positions of power or electoral positions of power, the more difficult it will be for them to create a narrative that they are trying to push the government in a particular direction. Because people can just point and say, but look, you, you did this and this and this, all with Labour. Um, I think, you know, people often say to me, um, but look at uh, that, all, these, all the really great work and messaging that these um, individual MPs are doing. Um, and I think you can make that argument for both some Green MPs um, and for some Labour MPs. But unless you have an overall political and electoral strategy um, that produces outcomes for, uh, you know, your citizens, then it doesn't matter how, like, what mouth sounds you make. Like, you, you can be great. You can, like, oh, cool, I gathered another 200 votes by saying this thing was outrageous. Um, you know, get two years down the track and uh, people are still mm -hmm. breathing in black mold. 
um, you know, those people just aren't going to vote. That, like, that's probably what's going to happen. Or another electoral vehicle will appear um, and, and gather those votes instead. Well, and, like, let's look if they the, give them 5%. Look at the Māori Party, right, which uh, alliance off with national. And, and it, they got some gains out of it, sure. But uh, they ended up being pretty soundly decimated electorally because they, they were basically punished by their voters because, of course, yes, they got some gains, but... Uh, overall, the the living standards uh, for the majority of Māori in the country and the national, you know, were not good. And Labour doesn't have that that toxic reputation that national does, at least at this point. But you have to wonder, what, at what point is it that people start to go, well, hold on, things haven't really gone better. We were promised all this transformational stuff. We were promised, uh, you know, poverty go down, it's gone up. Um, we were promised action on climate change, and nothing was really our nuclear moment. A nuclear moment, yeah, exactly. And 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 you know, at that point, are they going to be sort of tired with that? Actually, another thing that that uh, happened recently that uh, might be interesting to talk about as well is um, uh, the government's decision to, uh, to to anchor deal with Amazon, um, <laughs> which <laughs> I, kind of plays into this. This whole, you know, Nash uh, just ended up looking like a fool. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. First name uh, based on the first name basis with Jeff. Well, I was actually going to mention to. Um, well, I mean, I kind of want to mention to Richard later when we interview him <laughs> that um, potentially, you know, Amazon can take over um, doing our bus service, <laughs> and then we can really have a flexible workforce. Yeah. Yeah. In, the same kind of peeing in bottles you know if that's the way it's heading why not just go for the, the biggest and the best amazon driving yeah. down working conditions since biggest and the best bottles I'm... for peeing in yeah. well, it's um, just amazing from a purely kind of optic standpoint because i mean that that's what uh, you know let's what say 70 percent of the work <laughs> of people in parliament is it's kind of taking care of the the surface level uh, aspect of, of uh their, their careers and everything um, you would think that that choosing to do this now um, is, I mean, given all the terrible headlines that Amazon has made around the world, and especially in the US of the last, uh, I mean, years, but especially in the last, you know, month or two. Especially just, during could, the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know that this is not, this is about movies. This, I, I realize that, that this deal is about movies. However, it also... Uh, based on the reporting done about it, it also does seem to open the door for Amazon to, to do other ventures beyond just the movie stuff um, and to even potentially bring their warehouses into New Zealand, which, you know, I mean, we often talk about how, how cowed this government is by business. And yet, I mean, if I am a local retailer uh, and I hear that Amazon is potentially going to be able to plant their, their roots here, um, I would be shitting myself. Because Amazon is not, you know, even apart from its terrible treatment of its workers, it, the, the things that the ruthless businesses, uh, business practices that it has um, to eliminate competition. And to, I hear they pay lots of tax, though, Bronco. I hear Amazon pays lots of tax. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. <laughs> yeah. So, that, yeah, they'll, yeah, they'll call back some of that in tax. No, but I mean, yeah, seriously, it's, uh, it, we already have sort of our, our own Amazon, funnily enough, actually, in, in New Zealand, Fishpond. Well, I mean, that's that's sort of their, their very similar kind of business model. You sure. gotta assume that they must be looking at this like, good lord! Oh my god! What about I mean, Mighty X? Okay, look, let's not erase. Mighty, yeah. <laughs> let's not erase. Yeah, we have logistics and warehousing companies already, but 
yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why, does it, why is it Stuart National first name basis with them? That's what I want to know. Is he not a true Kiwi? Oh, he well, probably is. I would say he is. But, Stuart National is one of the worst, right? I mean, we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always fascinating to me where uh, 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 th this government is willing to, to buck businesses, you know, because that's often what we think. I mean, I think there is, that is part of it is that they are legitimately, they're worried about a business pushback, but clearly uh, only to a certain extent. Well, they're, I think they're they just like power and, and fame, right? Like some of them. Yeah. I, when Stuart Nash was talking about Amazon, about Jeff Bezos, he sounded so starstruck. I mean, he was so mad when he was caught up on it. He was so upset. It was, it was so just pathetic. Stuart Nash, if you weren't so pathetic on the radio and the way that you responded to criticisms of you making a, a starry-eyed deal with, um, you know, representatives of Jeff Bezos, because there's no fucking way he talked directly to you. No, yeah, sure. wait, I think but, we need a longer uh, thing for that. I think I hear Richard Wagstaff uh, knocking, knocking on the door. It's interesting because, uh, I'll just say this very quickly, uh, the, there's this, there was a strike, this lockout, and it's not the first time there's been a lockout. There was one in 2009 in Auckland, and what happened there was basically drivers were, were, were offered a pretty paltry pay raise that was, you know, nothing. Uh, basically still put their purchasing power well below what, what it used to be uh, decades ago. Um, the, the drivers didn't even strike. They, they sort of just did a kind of a work slowdown, basically, and they were met with a lockdown, and, and they lost. Um, and so uh, I think as we're about to hear from Richard, um, I think this particular strike and, and lockout uh, is going, as, or has gone rather very differently so far, although things are still, still uh, unfolding. So it'll be interesting to hear uh, how that's going. And we'll um, catch that after the break with uh, President of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, Richard Blackstaff. Welcome back to one of 200. Uh, we are here with the president of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, Richard Wagstaff, who is going to tell us a little bit about the standoff uh, between bus drivers in Wellington uh, and uh, NZ Bus and, and the, the private equity firm that, that owns them. Uh, we're very, very happy to have him here. So, so kia ora, Richard. Kia ora. Um, and I guess we'll start with you know, a really basic question, which is just if you can kind of catch us up on where we're at right now. There was, there was a, a lockout earlier in the week. There was, uh, or rather uh, at this point, what, last week. Now there's been a, an injunction against that. Um, so at what kind of stage uh, is the dispute at right now? What, what are we looking at in terms of what the drivers are facing? Yeah. Uh, good question. Well, uh, to put it into some context, the um, Tramways Union represents bus drivers in Wellington who work for New Zealand Bus, and it's got subsidiary companies, but New Zealand Bus, which is owned by Next Capital. Uh, New Zealand Bus has been around for quite some time, but um, uh, a couple of years ago, it was um, Infratel sold its shares in New Zealand Bus, and a new venture capital company called Next Capital purchased it. And pretty well from that time onward, um, the union, the tramways union, noticed a severe deterioration in relationships. 
and have been had a, an ongoing arm wrestle with New Zealand bus and their interpretation of their collective agreement and the way they've been treating drivers. So approaching collective bargaining um, this year for a new, to renew the collective agreement, um, the um, Tramways Union was quite anxious about that process, but, but also has been working within a broader process along with the CTU to try and get um, bus drivers' conditions improved across New Zealand because they're poor. And they're poor because of uh, the operating model, which we can come back to. Um, and um, leading up to negotiations, they were somewhat delayed because of COVID. There was a, a, um, a delay in, those, uh, in renewing the agreement. It's been expired for several months now. But they eventually got to the bargaining table um, over the last couple of months. And um, they'd also introduced to the bargaining table the council who contract New Zealand bus to provide the service. And the council had made it clear to the parties and publicly they have adopted a policy that anyone contracted to the council should be paid at least the living wage. And um, what they and what they have done had had been to convey that to the both the union and the employer at the bargaining table and conveyed to the um, parties as particularly New Zealand bus, that they were prepared to fund the adjustment. In other words, this was looking like quite an easy set of bargaining um, negotiations because here we had an employer uh, that, that only needed to accept the money that, that the council was going to give them in addition, pass that through to the collective agreement, lift up the bottom rates to the living wage, and the union would have accepted that. That was effectively the, unit, the union's claim, was effectively just adjust the rates to the living wage. Unfortunately, uh, while that sounds easy, uh, New Zealand bus um, wasn't prepared to just simply accept uh, an additional funding from the council and to pass that through to the bus drivers, which which is um, somewhat surprising. And they made it clear that they would only accept um, uh, any additional funding to, and lift things to the living wage if they could also impose some additional changes of their own. Uh, and by changes, I mean reductions in the rest of the agreement. So they wanted to do things like um, take a week's leave off drivers. They currently have five weeks a year to reduce it to, to four weeks a year. They wanted to reduce, change the roster so that there was far less predictability for drivers and far more um, availability required by drivers to fit in with shifts. Um, they wanted to uh, adjust um, additional allowances that drivers get for doing shift work, working weekends and evenings and so on. There's actually quite a long list of changes that they wanted, which the union felt were seriously detrimental to the overall conditions of the package. So while the company was prepared to accept more funding from the council to settle the agreement, they wanted to also you know, reduce the, the overall conditions. And the bus drivers were quite clear when they examined this offer that um, they didn't want it. And they felt suitably uh, annoyed at the count, at the employer's approach, given it looked like an easy settlement to, to make. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, the union had a stop week meeting and, and I attended that and they put two motions to their members. One was um, they put forward the, the employer's offer that is of this new contract to say, do you want this agreement? This, this agreement that does actually have a higher base rate, but has all the other conditions stripped out. The members rejected that. 99% of members rejected that. Uh, then they put another proposal to the to the stop work meeting, which was, do you want to <clears throat> um, take industrial action to um, pressure the employer to make a better offer? And 99% of the bus drivers accepted that. 
And the idea was that the union would basically um, would make a call as to when to begin that industrial campaign. And the first day of that happening was last Friday. They voted to take a 24-hour stoppage last Friday, um, just before um, Anzac weekend. In response to that, the employer said, don't bother coming back to work. And said, and effectively, by saying to the drivers, uh, the minute your, your strike ends, you're, we're going to lock you out indefinitely until you sign the proposed agreement that we put to you with inferior conditions. And um, that's where we got to. And then we found, uh, which was pretty, we, we reacted pretty badly to that because that's an extreme reaction and indefinite lockout, lockout, very rare actually. And um, we know that the council was incredibly disappointed as well as the, the drivers and the union and the public. Um, and uh, we set up a picket line and um, then we went to court and the employment court uh, su supported our, our claim for an injunction to prevent the lockout on the grounds that, um, well, there are several grounds, really technical grounds, as well as um, we question the legality of the employment agreement that the um, New Zealand bus was trying to force workers onto. Um, we don't think it was lawful in itself, the conditions were so poor. But, um, but clearly New Zealand bus was hoping to starve those drivers into submission by locking them out and keeping them away from work. And getting an injunction against that lockout was an was a, was a important um, victory for us. Uh, now we have a situation where the parties are going back into mediation tomorrow. Mediation, a process being where you have a third party tries to get the parties to the union and the employer to find common ground, but it's not compulsory. They don't rule. They just simply try and get agreement. And um, that happens tomorrow. Whether uh, I'd, the union obviously, would, I think, would still be happy for the um, company to accept the, the council's offer and just pass it through. Whether or not New Zealand bus has changed its tune since this dispute blew up and their lockout fell over or not remains to be seen. They may well um, be just the same as they were or worse or better. We won't know for 24 hours. So that's Wednesday, the 28th of April, right? Correct, yes. Just, um, yeah. I think this will hopefully go live tomorrow. So it'll be happening yeah. uh, as people listen to this. Um, <laughs> yes. I just want to be clear for our listeners. Just, um, you know, there's a lot of detail there, but... Essentially, what it sounds like is that um, New Zealand bus um, and you know whatever firms uh, kind of fund them said to council, "We will take free money from you to make conditions for our drivers worse." Effectively, that's right. They said we'll only accept that money as long as we can also make changes, cut the contract. And our view is that they're a venture capital company; they don't have any regard for the service. The people, the people of Wellington, they're in here to invest in a company, make a few changes and then sell it for more. And we understand, our impression is they do want to sell this company, uh, that they it didn't turn out the way they wanted. And the way that they can make money is to strip out the labour costs. And hence they want to create a collective agreement that has low labour costs. And then as we say, they want to strip it and flip it like venture capital companies do. It's an Australian company. It's, it's sort of brought the ruthless world of, of venture capital to the to the employment relations scene and um, we've seen the consequences. Mm. Yeah, I mean, private equity firms, uh, people may remember the, the Dick Smith debacle, uh, that, that was a product of exactly this kind of, um, of financial management, which is, as you say, yes, you just strip the, as much value out of it as you can in the short term, sell the company. Doesn't matter if it's uh, permanently hobbled, uh, as long as you've sort of gotten your short term profits, that, that's the main thing. Um, 
Uh, I want to ask you as well, this has come, I guess, uh, following or in the context of um, a bit of chaos uh, uh, in, in you know, the Wellington public transport system, because there's been a lot of cancellations of buses that was happening before this, um, which uh, you know, the union has said because there's been a lot of resignations, right? Um, I want to ask you, why, why have bus drivers been resigning in, in these large numbers? And, and I guess to give people a sense <laughs> who may not be that familiar with uh, the working conditions of, of people who, who, you know, basically run our public transport system, who are actually on the ground doing it. You know, what, what it's like to be a bus driver and, and you know, the, the nature of the job. Yeah, it's, it's, um, there are, it's a tough job. Um, it's not well remunerated and um, the drivers aren't made to feel like they're not like they're worth much, particularly by this employer. Can you imagine your employer locking you out from work? Uh, there's a, there's a few um, reasons for that um, across the industry. Probably the most significant one is this thing called the public transport operating model, which is very Thatcherite. If anyone remembers Margaret Thatcher, what, what happened was, the councils um, were, the law says that councils have to tender their bus routes. Um, they have to put them out to tender for the private market to bid on them. And the problem is um, that unless that tender is, is deliberately structured to protect drivers, um, drivers' conditions are very much at risk. So to give you an idea, here in Wellington, and this happens all over the country, but here in Wellington about four years ago, um, uh, we understood that the council was going to put out bus services for tender in Wellington. And New Zealand bus at that time had uh, most, if not all of the routes, practically all of the routes that they operated. The um, council um, said they were going to put them out for tender. We went and met them and said, you need to put in that tender process protections for the bus drivers themselves. You need to be clear to the companies tendering that they have to honour the existing employment agreements and and maintain the staff. So even if New Zealand bus loses the tender, there needs to be some approach where um, the new company has to pick up the old drivers and their conditions of work. The council uh, went to great lengths to obfuscate what they were doing and to uh, uh, to tell us that um, uh, that we couldn't see what they'd put in the tender documents. Um, it became a comedy, really. We got the in we tried to get the ombudsman in to find out what was going on. In the end, we discovered that, because they assured us that they'd had a rigorous process in place and they'd attended to this stuff, but in the end, we found out that they had a questionnaire that asked the new, the t the new companies who were tendering, how are you going to treat their drivers and do you have a good record? And they answered that they had, they're going to treat them really well and they have a great record. And that was all. That was the that's only due diligence they did. Well, um, I mean, that's, that answers the question, I guess. Rigorous yes, process. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so what happened was, if you think about it, Without any kind of industry standard of employment conditions, and we don't have that in New Zealand yet, hopefully that will change with fair pay agreements, without any industry standard, New Zealand bus had a collective agreement with its drivers, so it had certain conditions of work that, that the unit had negotiated. So it had, you know, weekend rates, night rates, shift patterns, and all these things. Everyone else tendering for the bus service had nothing except the bare statutory minimums of the minimum wage, the minimum holidays, the minimum and so on. So New Zealand bus was at a significant disadvantage tendering for the services that they've been operating. Mm. And um, New Zealand bus had no chance of renewing their, their contract to run the services, half the services of Wellington. And they lost them. 
to another company called Transit, who took over those services. They completely stripped out um, all of these conditions, put in a higher base rate, but they stripped out all of these conditions, uh, won the tender, and there was very little bus drivers could do about it. And in the process, they were um, very difficult uh, and not welcoming of, of drivers having a union at all. And at that time, we thought, how bad can it get? Um, half the city has, has got this terrible contract, you know, that was won through the tender process. We found out how bad it could get. New Zealand bus realised, and Infratel realised that they were in a hopelessly uncompetitive situation, flicked New Zealand bus to this venture finance capital company, Next Capital, who now control New Zealand bus, and they're trying to drive New Zealand bus underneath these other people who won the tender. Do you see? So it's a race to the bottom. Uh, and that's what's kicked off. What's particularly galling about this is that the council didn't have to do that. The council had every opportunity and could have lawfully uh, put in the tender documents that the bus driver's conditions have to be protected, and they chose not to. That council is no longer with us in terms of the people who are elected to it and are running it. And I have to say the current councillors, uh, Darren Ponter in particular, um, the regional council, uh, council uh, leader has been really has had a completely different attitude and has been suitably outraged by the by the behavior of, of New Zealand bus in the current situation I don't think the previous council would have had the same attitude so we're very glad to have that on our side now in terms of their conditions um, you know that the bus services operate from um, you know from early in the morning to late at night um, uh, it's not highly paid. Obviously, a lot of the beer conditions are under the living wage. But more importantly, a lot of drivers do split shifts. They, they work, you know, three or four hours in the morning. They have three hours or four hours in between. What can you do with that much time? You know, nothing. You'll, you'll see them hanging around town in Wellington, um, waiting, you know, doing not much at all. And then they get back on the job and do the, so that, you know, do the rush hour in the afternoon. But it means that you leave home in the morning and you might get home 12 or 13 hours later, you've only got seven or eight hours pay, um, and it's not good pay. It's, it's not a great job, um, mm. and they don't get particularly good pay for doing that. So mm. it's, it's, it's not a wonderful job. The other thing that happened, obviously, when that went for tender was Wellington rearranged all of its um, bus services themselves and bus routes and the actual buses. As we said, when the document went to tender, the document stipulated the bus routes, the kinds of bus, the numbers of seats, the wheels, the fuel, even the number of, even the fabric of the seats, but it did not stipulate the cost of labour. So that was the only thing that had downward pressure on it was the cost of labour. Um, so the, the successful tenderer, uh, they, you know, they, they bid on that really, um, but they also had to put in place new routes. Those new routes were, it was a shambles, if people remember. There's a lot of public backlash, and I don't know about you, but I was often on, on, on buses where the public was very frustrated, and often they'd be shouting at the driver saying, what is this you know, useless service and so on, and the, mm. and the drivers would be putting up with it. Throughout COVID, bus drivers you know, had, a, had to hold the line, keep it going. They're quite an old demographic of drivers. They're vulnerable themselves, but they keep things going, and they're expected to, you know, to, to keep, sort of, um, keep the system in place. And so pretty tough job, responsible job without much recognition. Mm. You know, so, what, oh. Oh, I was going to say to answer your question, Richard, we, we weren't alive in Thatcher times, but we are haunted by her, I would say, <laughs> on a personal level. Yeah. Go absolutely. On, you know, I will, you know, what you said about split shifts, I mean, it's, it, you think about if, if you have a family, right, and you're a bus driver, I mean, how do you, how do you see a family 
if if that's the kind of these are the conditions you're working under or even if you don't have a family i mean you know god forbid that people doing a very important job uh that makes our a country run uh should have a life uh outside of work right and and i was um actually just reading something about the the revolution in in portugal uh that got rid of the the dictatorship there and how one of the uh one of the the, the slogans of i think it was the bakers you know the the, the slogan was uh we want the right to, to be able to sleep with our wives, um, which, you know, which sounds funny, but you know, that's, it's, this, it's such a fundamental thing, the idea of being able to have a normal, regular life, a regular family life uh, that's not just sort of dictated by, by your work or you, you sort of had to, to organize it around your work. Um, that I think we sort of, to some extent, we've kind of forgotten that, that really basic human uh, element um, now, but you know, um, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, and and one, I mean, they don't all do split, split shifts, but a lot of them do, or they start, you know, at five a.m. or even mm. earlier. But one of the the um, the things about the union is said to, and unions often say this. That when I say unions, I mean their, their workforce. I've been involved in industries, and this is another one where the employer says, "Why don't we have just a flat rate? We'll make it as you know, make it at a higher level." But there's no special treatment in the weekends, and the union itself says, mm. "No, we'd rather have a lower rate." and compensation for our members who have to work weekends and nights and all those things, because it's just not the same. And, and our, you know, 10 o'clock on a Monday does feel different to 2 a.m. or mm. 1 a.m. On, on a Friday night. It's a different cost to us. Um, and so we do want dif- differences. But for some reason, um, we have employers who just insist on, on one, one size fits all and, and don't recognise what, what um, mm. drivers bring to those discussions. They have to yeah. um, purchase a more complicated account system, I'm sure. It'll cost them yeah. far too much. You're right, actually, and and Holidays Act and all these things, yeah. So I guess, oh, no, sorry, Justine. I guess I have a question around the tendering process um, and the way that everything else is stipulated except wages. Would you say that this process is kind of designed to drive down costs like wage? You know, labor tends to be the largest cost of these contractors. And what is the union's position on, you know, having these um, essential services being provided, provided, you know, by council themselves rather than being contracted out and having this sort of merry-go-round of um, venture capital sort of vultures and all sorts of characters coming around to try and you know lower wages and drive down conditions i'm just curious you know there's two two parts to that question so in terms of um of effectively the privatization of public services we we strongly disagree with that we don't think these are places to make private profit we should be people there should be people running them who have the interests of public transport as their first and primary motivation, not not how much money they can make out of it. And we need to build a workforce. I mean, why not build a decent workforce and a career rather than uh, than having people desperate to work in these places uh, in the conditions they work? You know, you'd be amazed um, at, at, you know, we do surveys of drivers and, and we find out that fundamental things like going to the toilet is an incredibly difficult problem. There are no facilities. And they're meant to keep driving round and round in, in, in circles, whether it be Auckland or Wellington or wherever. And there's no proper rest and meal breaks, uh, no ability to do sort of, you know, to, to have basic um, human functions catered for. Um, in terms of um, the the kind of the tendering model, the other, um, not only would we prefer it if it was, if it was um, and we do feel it should be provided in-house, not only actually from a transport point of view, but if you think of um, lowering our emissions and, and, that, and kind of trying to green our transport system, that might take some serious investment. 
uh, and we don't want to leave that to to a private company whose main motivation isn't to do what it is we need done. The second issue is that it works in concert with our deregulated approach to the employment law in a labour market. Most countries in the OECD have labour standards across industries. You know, in Australia, they have a modern award system. In other countries, they have a, a minimum for certain occupations under which you cannot contract. If you'd had that for bus drivers, it's much, then everyone tendering at least has to tender to a much higher standard than the, than the, than the lowest possible rate you can have it, uh, according to our employment law now. So if you like, it's, it's, it's a combination of, of um, employment law, of transport um, of law and, and council uh, law that is kind of combined to create this perfect storm. And it is deliberate, no doubt about it. You know, um, the, the free market is designed to drive to drive down price, um, including the price on labour, and it does. Mm. And I think it's important to, to think about how horrified and appalled we've been hearing about some of the conditions of uh, Amazon drivers in, uh, in the US um, and how you know, horrific that sounds. And I mean, you know, th this is not maybe to the exact same extent, but it's a similar problem. I mean, you know, the basic bodily functions, as you say, that, that workers are not able to do, um, you know, uh, treating humans almost as if they are automatons. Um, and it seems like, I don't know how it compared to, to previous strikes. I, I can't quite remember you know, what the level of public support is for those, but it seems like this one has actually gotten quite a bit of public support, even though obviously any sort of strike uh, with the bus service is going to be incredibly disruptive to people's lives. And yet it does seem like people are on the side of the, the drivers. Is, is that correct? Or am I just sort of am I engaging in some wishful thinking here? No, I think you are right. I think in Wellington, there's a particular um, affection for the bus drivers and, and the bus service. Um, I'm an Aucklander, but I've been here for, for six or seven years. And I notice that people, when they get off the bus, they go, thank you, driver. It's just, mm. a, it's just kind of a, a, a thing we do here. And I think the public transport system up until recent times has been seen to be probably more, more, more reliable and more, kind of, more used by the people of Wellington, <laughs> I would say, than Auckland um, because of a number of reasons. So there's a lot of affection for, for it in that sense. And I think um, I, we, we certainly found that there was a very strong support came through for the union on the picket line. We got a lot of support. Um, we had people contacting us, people making donations. Um, there, there's a, a very strong support for it. And, and I think the actually the regional council made a public statement saying you haven't even locked, you haven't only locked out the drivers, you've locked out the commuters, you've locked out our people. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think those kinds of statements really helped um, create a narrative that was that was very powerful. Um, I, I understand from reading the Sun, from reading the, the, the Dominion yesterday that that first cap no, sorry that that um, uh, New Zealand bus hired a PR consultancy firm to do this I thing, but I don't think it worked. For, yeah, I don't think it worked very well from them, from what I can see. But no doubt, um, they're, they're still they're still working on that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the level of sort of, I guess, depravity that you, you're working with, where you'd rather engage an expensive PR firm than... Um, take free money. Than, yeah, <laughs> take free money and um, pay your workers reasonable living wage. It was pretty... Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we're all up in Auckland and we've been paying attention um, to it. So um, I'm not, you know, I can't think of another time where Aucklanders were so invested in what was happening with Wellington's um, bus. Oh, great. <laughs> um, well, I, would, I was just wondering, oh, sorry, Bronco. In terms of like educating our listeners, um, you know, this has been 
this was a lockout, you know, it started with a strike and then um, the employer, um, you know, took that really regressive step of um, an indefinite lockout. And now, of course, the injunctions happened and that's ended. But I just wondered if you would, you might um, mind answering for us, like, firstly, what is a lockout? Is all lockouts legal? When are they legal? <laughs> and like, why? Yeah. What, what is a lockout? Because I don't, I think a lot of people think strikes and lockouts are the same thing. Yeah, that's a really good question. And very often our most famous lockout, the 51 lockout, is described as a, as a strike. And it was actually much more about a lockout. So in the employment, I mean, so internationally, you know, there's a right to strike. Um, workers have a right to strike. Um, and employers do have a right to lockout. In the New Zealand law, um, you can strike for, for one main reason. Um, a secondary reason is you can, a strike is refusing to do what you would normally do. Um, so anything that you would normally do at work, you refuse to do is, is actually technically a strike. So sometimes you have partial strikes where workers will say we're refusing to fill in the memo or pick up the phone. That, that's still a strike. Or even refusing to do overtime if you've always done it is technically a strike. But broadly speaking, most people think of a strike as where you withdraw your labour completely and refuse to go to work. Um, now, unions in New Zealand law are permitted to do that for two reasons. The first one is, is an obvious one, is a health and safety reason. If you, with reasonable grounds, believe you know it's, it's an incredibly dangerous situation at work, you can refuse to work, it's effectively a strike. That's, that's not what people, what most people think of when you think of strikes. So I just sort of put, put that one out of the way. The main reason is, the main reason why we have strikes is when um, we're trying to negotiate a collective agreement. A collective agreement is an employment agreement that covers more than two or more people. And it's initiated and negotiated by, by a union. So people who are, you know, in this case, bus drivers, um, or the ones who work for New Zealand Bus, I think in fact all of them have joined the union. That's not always the case, but in this case, they've all joined the union. They've authorised uh, their union to enter into collective bargaining, to sit down at negotiations and try and renew their collective agreement because they have a term in it and had it expired. And to renew it, they, they, they look at all the, the conditions in it and they say, what do we want to have adjusted and what can we reasonably claim in negotiations to adjust? And it's often the pay rate to keep it up with um, inflation and or um, productivity. Uh, it might be other things that just need improving. Um, uh, and in this case, the tramways union sought to get an adjustment to the pay rate equal to the living wage. And, and, and the, on the way of doing that, they also arranged for the council to, to make it clear that they'd fund it, which you'd think would be easy. Now, the employer... Uh, is also allowed to do their version of a lockout uh, of a strike, which is to lock out the workforce in pursuit of a collective agreement. So they can say, um, while you might be striking for a collective agreement, we also want to apply industrial pressure on you to accept our offer, and they can refuse to allow you back at work until you accept it. While some employers might think of those two things as sort of um, two sides of a, of a coin or kind of a mirror of each other, they're not, I don't think they are. Um, we would say that a, that a lockout is a more drastic set than a, than a strike. Um, there's an imbalance of power normally in the employment relationship. Um, Literally starving hundreds of people, right? You're starving people into submission. Uh, and that's what they're hoping to do here. And certainly an indefinite lockout is a really, that's, Quite extreme. I can't think of an, an indefinite lockout uh, recently. Tallies may have done that in NAFCO. Um, they certainly had a long lockout there. You'll remember um, 
yeah. seven or eight years ago. But yeah, that's a pretty extreme thing to do. That means you can't come back to work ever until you sign this agreement. Uh, and then what would have happened was if we hadn't won that, that um, injunction, we would have been holding out doing everything we can to get the company to change its mind about the lockout and we would have applied all the pressure we could. Uh, we know that they would have had problems to think about, which would have been the council would have started to say, you have a contract with us to provide bus services. How can you be saying you're doing that when you're refusing to allow your staff to work? You know, they would have had those kinds of complications. Um, but that's what a lockout is. It's kind of the, it's the other side of a strike. But um, it's, it's a more drastic step to take in our view. It's a very aggressive step to take. And remember, these people have to keep employing these staff. Um, after you do that to your staff, it's, it's, it's quite a long healing process, I would suggest, to get it back to normal if you want to heal. Mm. Well, I, I think this has been really, uh, I think, educational, I hope, for everyone who's listening. And I, I think uh, really informative, too. And I hope that uh you know now with uh everyone back at the bargaining table that that uh something will happen i guess we'll see tomorrow or today uh, as it turns out whenever people do listen to this but um we want to thank you again for for coming uh one last question i'd ask you is is if people are you know interested in in, in some way helping out contributing to uh you know the the, the driver's struggle here what can they do you know uh, I think get on the CTU website, um, www.nzctu.org.nz. Have a look there um, and you'll get kind of the updates. If we settle this agreement today or tomorrow or whenever, um, you know, I guess we'll move on to the, to the next issue. There's plenty of issues for bus drivers in Auckland, by the way. Um, uh, and they'll, they come along occasionally. Um, and if we don't settle it, um, look on that webpage um, for events, for donation opportunities, for, for, for anything. And, and it's really nice to hear that people of Auckland um, were looking out for this because it is a national issue, really. It's not just here. It's, it's that whole industry needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, hey, thanks again for, for coming. And um, uh, I guess that's, that's one of 200 for another week. Uh, so, kia ora. Uh, yeah, kia ora. Uh, I, I guess I sh- I, I'm going to take the place of Carl here under the usual, uh, uh, you know, uh, little coda at the end. Please like, subscribe, share uh, if you want to chuck us some money, uh, as well as do the bus drivers first. But, um, you know, if you have some leftover, uh, you know, it'll be great to have some in the Patreon. Um, other than that, uh, it's been great chatting with you guys and we'll see you uh, next week. Kia ora, everyone. Keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation